you. I'm gonna bring this over. Josh is real cool and he can move around. I'm like, have you ever seen that movie Hitch? It's like 10 and two, you know? That's where I live right here, so I'm gonna bring this over. I hope you guys are having a good morning. Uh, My name is Austin, as Benjamin mentioned. And um, yeah, I'm with Church of the Cross currently. it's like a two-year pastoral residency program, and so kind of the first year is um, developing like pastoral character and competency, and then the second year, which is where we are now, is kind of um, understanding like the dynamics of practical ministry with, with the hope that, you know, we can kind of, my wife and I can kind of jump into uh, ministry uh, afterwards. So that's kind of where we are. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at a text in Mark 7. Um, and we're going to start with verse 1, and this is like a huge chunk of Scripture. It's on page 934 if you don't have a Bible. Um, and again, if you don't have a Bible too, those blue Bibles are a gift for you. Please take it home uh, and just consider it a gift from Flourishing Grace. But we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 30. It's going to be a pretty, pretty good chunk of text, and then uh, we'll kind of see what it all means here. So if you'll follow along, I'll be in Mark 7, 1. And it says, Uh, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from uh, Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Um, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples uh, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said, hear me, All of you and understand there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he had entered the house and the people, or and left the people, and his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. 
And she went home and found the child lying in bed, the demon gone. Thank you for listening through all this. And so uh, this is a, a really awesome text. Um, and, and when I think about this message or this, this, this scripture, um, it kind of brings me back to the fourth grade. Uh, in the fourth grade, I actually made a, a terrible mistake that, <laughs> that actually like, changed the trajectory of my entire like, in-school experience. Um, I, I accidentally made the honor roll. And so it seemed like a great thing at the time. I was like really like happy about it. And I told my parents about it and they were really excited. But what I didn't know is that by making the honor roll, I had established a standard, right? And so now my parents had determined, hey, like you can make the honor roll. So now you have to, you know? And so, so that meant like the whole rest of my in-school career, uh, I was constantly working to get these good grades and good grades. And, and uh, if I didn't, I would get grounded. And uh, when I was grounded, it was, it was really bad. It was like, you know, solitary confinement, uh, you know, no privileges, you know, in my room the whole semester until I could bring the grades up. And unless I wanted to do chores, you know, I could get like work leave um, if my parents wanted, they wanted to give me that. Um, but, but somewhere around like high school age, I just kind of decided that this standard wasn't something that I wanted to live up to, and I just kind of blew it off. Um, and it was fine for the most part, but then every semester, report cards would get sent, right? And then that whole week before the report card came to my, came to my house, I just full of guilt. Just this pit in my stomach every morning when I wake up, I feel like I you know, ate a pound of rocks, and I'm just thinking about, dang, whatever, how am I gonna get home and get that report card before my parents see it and burn it in the alley, you know. Um, but I think this sense of like tension, this, this inner guilt uh, that I had then, and I think, I think it's something that we can, we can all relate to now. I think uh, there's a lot of times where we'll, we'll make choices in life um, that kind of cause this tension within us, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, and we're kind of left with this idea of like, uh, how do we deal with that? What do we do about it, right? Um, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, uh, The King's Cross. Uh, he said, we live in a world now where we don't believe in judgment, we don't believe in sin, and yet we feel that there's something wrong with us. Uh, we've abandoned the ancient categories, uh, and he was talking about for right or wrong in the context there. Um, but we still have this profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we'd be rejected. And, and our culture tells us we shouldn't feel this way, right? Our culture says that, uh, you know, there's no moral absolutes and we should just be our authentic self. But, but experientially, we know that that's not true. Like, experientially, we know that when we do something that, that kind of violates this internal sense of morality, we don't feel good about it, you know? Um, and so then we're, we're left with this question about what do we what do, we do with it, you know? Um, what do we do with that negative feeling we have inside after we, we yell at our kids or if we spend too much time, uh, you know, coveting someone's life on social media? How, how do we get rid of that kind of, that, that tension, that grossness that we'll feel? Um, and common human experience, right? Everyone experiences it. And, and culture, which tells you that there is no sense of real morality, doesn't really offer a solution to remove that tension. And so today, uh, this morning, we're, we're gonna look at that in, in Mark 7. Um, and, and just so you kind of know how, how we're gonna um, kind of work our way through the verse, we're gonna look at some context here in Mark 7. Um, we're jumping right into the middle of the passage, and it's always kind of good to know what's happening before, what's coming after. Um, and then we're gonna kind of look a little exegetically and just see what the main theological thrust of the message is, or uh, of uh, Jesus' message in Mark, and then we'll look at some applicational points. So that's kind of like a roadmap in case uh, you're wanting to follow along. Um, 
But in, you know, Mark in general, um, it's, it's called like a, it's like a historical narrative. That's the kind of genre that we're looking at. And so everything in here is historically true. Everything that's asserted is historically true. But when Mark was putting this, this narrative of Jesus together, he's doing it artfully. Each story kind of builds on the next one and, and it's making this way all the way up to this crescendo in Mark 16 when Jesus rises you know, from the grave. And, and so um, each kind of movement of scripture isn't necessarily to be taken in isolation. It's kind of... They, they, they work together to create a, a thrust. And so that's why we're looking at 30 verses here. Um, if you're going to do like a simple outline of Mark, the very first half, like the first eight chapters more roughly, um, is, is kind of uh, Jesus' kingly rule. You could kind of put it under that bracket. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, we see Jesus being baptized and we hear the voice of God come and say, this is my son, today I have begotten him. You know, uh, the son whom I love, my beloved son. And uh, God's not in this moment making Jesus his son. Like Jesus has eternally been God's son. But this, this language that we're hearing God use actually comes from Psalm 2. And it's inaugural language. So like when a king would take the throne in Israel, they would read Psalm 2 over them. And uh, this idea of begottenness is embedded in there, Psalm 2 verse 7. And, and it was kind of like this idea that when a king ruled over Israel, they're kind of adopted as God's son and they had this authority. And so, so what's happening here is God the Father is looking down on God the Son and proclaiming his kingly rule in creation, and it's being sealed by God the Spirit who's coming down. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we see happening in this first chapter. And then two through six, Jesus is just going out doing miracles, and he's, he's establishing his kingdom. You know, he's, he's establishing his dominance, uh, or uh, dominion, I'm sorry. The second half of Mark is about how this king is not a tyrannical dictator but this king came to love and serve, um, and, and he humbly laid down his life for us so that there could be a way for us to get back to God. And so if you're going to break out the, the Mark in kind of two main sections, you'd see Christ as king and then Christ the suffering servant. That's kind of the outline. And so what we're looking at is in Mark 7, 7 1, and you'll see how um, there's going to be parts of this text that are going to connect us back to that motif of kingly rule but it's still going to have its own kind of theological thrust. And so that's what we're going to pick out today is what is the theological thrust of Mark uh, 7, 1 through 30. Um, in, in, in verse 1, we're kind of introduced to the three primary characters, right? We have the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and we have the disciples, they're kind of one character, and then we have Jesus, who's kind of the main character, right? And, uh, and uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they kind of heard that Jesus was going on this miracle bender. You know, he's like like healing the sick and he's like raising people from the dead and casting out demons and doing all these like kingly things that only God can do. Um, and they want to check this out. They're like, what's going on? You know, and so, so the very first thing that they do is they, they see the disciples in this market eating with hands that are unwashed. And so um, this, is, this is a big problem for them. Uh, they have this tradition that they established that was based on uh, Exodus 30. And it said that anytime a, a priest was going to go into the temple to offer a sacrifice, they had to wash their hands to be considered clean. And so what the Pharisees were like notorious for doing is that they would do this, uh, this thing, they called it like a building a fence around the law. And so they would take God's law and then make a little bit more strict of a law so that if you broke that law, you're not actually breaking God's law. And, and uh, like a famous example, a classic example is like the idea of don't use the Lord's name in vain, right? The Pharisees and the Jewish people didn't even say the word Yahweh. That was, that was not, like, that was against their rules. And so we see an example of this here in the text where the Pharisees are taking this law from Exodus 30, and then they're applying it to everybody, whether you're a priest or not, or whether uh, you're offering a sacrifice or not, and saying that you have to wash your hands. And so uh, in this passage, 
Um, they're, trying to, they're, they're trying to call out Jesus. And, and there's one thing to note that's kind of important here. When, when the Pharisees lived in this first century kind of Roman context, there was two main types of Pharisees. Uh, you had Republicans and, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's, there's the Hillels and the Shemais. And, and the Shemais, um, that's actually the branch of Phariseeism that Paul came from. Um, so when we read the Pauline epistles, he's the guy, he was, when he was Saul, he was a part of this branch. And uh, they believed it was their responsibility to usher in the kingdom. They thought that if they worked hard to kind of get everything in order, that the Messiah, this Psalm 2 Messiah, would come. And so when they see Jesus and his disciples eating with unwashed hands, they're losing it because they, they see this as like, hey, you're, you're, you're delaying the coming of the Messiah. And so they try to call out Jesus, and Jesus flips the script on them, right? He kind of turns it around and decides to kind of call them out. And, and he says, hey, wait a minute, Isaiah, Isaiah was right about you. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from you. And then Mark, you know, as he's writing this account, he wants to make sure we really get this point, <laughs> what the Pharisees are doing that's not right. And so he uses these like three verses that are kind of parallel to each other. And each one of them is kind of contrasting what they're doing with what they should be doing. And so we see in, in verse 8, it says, you leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And in verse 9, it says, you've rejected the commandments of God and established your own tradition. And then finally, in 13, it says, you make void the word of God by upholding handed down traditions. And then to illustrate, Jesus uses this example of Corbin, right? And so Corbin was this practice, not in scripture. It was developed uh, uh, like second temple period in, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish history. But basically, they could dedicate money to the temple and it was irrevocable. And so Jesus is saying, look, this money that you're dedicating to the temple, you could be using to take care of your parents, and you're not taking care of your parents, which is actually violating the fifth commandment. So this made-up rule that you're using is causing you to break the law of God. And so uh, he's, he's driving the point here with these parallel lines in this illustration that the Pharisees missed it. Right? But they, they didn't realize how much they missed it. They didn't realize how far off they were because the main thrust as this passage moved on, moves on isn't like rule-breaking. Like, there is an exhortation here for us as believers to obey God's law. That's just, that's part of discipleship. That's what we do as believers. But that's not the main thrust that Jesus is getting at. What Jesus is talking about as this passage unfolds is the nature of sin. And so we're, we're going to see in, in this first movement, 1 through 13, Jesus is addressing the behavior. And then in the second movement of Scripture, and it's uh, verses tw- uh, 14 through through 23, he's kind of addressing the, the presuppositions that, that caused the behavior, right? This framework that the Pharisees had. Because the Pharisees, they weren't like, like we, we paint the Pharisees as such bad people. And there are some of them that were like real jerks, you know. But a lot of them were, were people who, who genuinely wanted to serve God, right? They, 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 they knew their scripture. Um, and at the base of their beliefs was a desire to honor God. And, and so they, they believed that God was good. They believed that God made a good world. They believed that God uh, wanted us to be in relationship with him. They believed that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and marred that relationship. They believed that we do the same thing when we rebel against God. We mar that relationship. But where the Pharisees got it wrong, and especially the Shemais, they thought that they had the ability to make things better. They believed that one day the Messiah would come and he would destroy all the enemies and that rule over Israel and Israel would just be this dominant like superpower in the world. Um, but the Shemais believed that it was, it was their job to get things in order so that the Messiah could come. And so at the root of the problem that the Pharisees had, they believed that what was wrong with the world was an external problem. And so they tried to fix it with external solutions. 
And so Jesus gathers everyone around. He wants to address this, this huge misnomer. He's, everybody listen. You know, I want to set the record straight right now. There's, there's nothing outside of you that can go inside of you and make you unclean. And his disciples were floored. Like, they, they, you know, their whole life, um, they'd upheld these cleanliness laws. And that's a good thing. God, God declared that certain foods and certain practices were unclean. And so that's a good thing. That means that they're unclean. And God had like pedagogical purposes behind them. But when God makes a declaration, it stands. And so uh, when Jesus is telling them, there's, there's nothing that goes out, or nothing outside of you can come inside of you and make you unclean, the disciples, they don't know how to take it. And so then Jesus gives them this basic uh, gastronomy lesson, <laughs> uh, kind of explaining the way food works. And, and uh, then in, in, in verse 19, there's like a parenthetical statement that really is like a, a Copernican revolution for these guys. They, they're about to see the world in a whole new light. Um, Jesus said, thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. It's in uh, verse 19. And so uh, in this moment, Jesus is giving us uh, a taste of who he is. He, he's letting us know who he is. Uh, God is the one that declared certain foods to be unclean. And only God can say that certain foods are not clean. In this moment, Jesus is cluing us in to his lordship as God, this kingly proclamation that he's making, this decree. And so, so Jesus is clearing up this idea of, of outside foods making us unclean, and then he wants to go in and address the source of our uncleanliness. And he says, the source of our uncleanliness is us, right? He says in, in verses 21 through uh, 23, he says, what comes out of a person is not what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they are what defiles a person. And so the source of our uncleanliness is not outside of us, it's inside of us. We, we, are, we are sinful people by, by choice and by nature. Um, the theologian Wayne Grudem, he actually defines sin this way. He says, uh, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And so, so sin is our actions that don't conform with God's moral standards, our impure thoughts that, and desires that don't conform with God's standards, and our very nature can be sinful. And so uh, Grudem will actually go on to say, our very nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons can also be sinful. Before we're redeemed by Christ, not only did we do sinful acts and have sinful attitudes, we were also sinners by nature. Even while asleep, an unbeliever, though not committing a sinful action or actively nurturing sinful attitudes is still a sinner in God's sight. He or she still has sinful, uh, sinful nature that does not conform to God's moral laws. And so apart from Christ, we are all sinners at our very nature, right? Without Jesus at the core of who I am is sinful. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is correcting the Pharisees' belief that our impurity comes from the bad things that we do, right? Our, our impurity comes from within us. We don't, we don't, we're not sinful because we do bad things. We do bad things because we're sinful, and so our culture, again, is going to work hard to fight this, right? Our culture is going to tell us that's not true. You know, the mainstream media is going to say, no, no, everything is okay as long as you're not hurting anyone and being authentic to who you are. You know, we're all deep down good inside. And uh, uh, we, we have to do serious mental gymnastics to actually believe that. 
right? Because it conflicts with our human experience. Like as, as people, we all know that we have this, like these things that come out of us, these things that we do that we're not proud of. And, and we see the sinfulness come out of us, you know, at work. You know, a guy forgets to, to load paper in the printer and we just assume he's an idiot before we think that, like, hey, you might've had a rough morning. You know, or, or, you know, if a mom parents differently and we judge them or, you know, we, we go to the gym and have these impure thoughts or something, like this is all a byproduct of this sinful nature that we have. And so if we stop listening to this uh, pop culture, cultural narrative for five minutes, we'll come to the grips with the fact that we are sinners. And so, so then the question becomes, what do we do about it, right? Um, the Pharisees tried to address their own impurities by external works, you know, uh, and, and just like me as a, as a fourth grader trying to deal with this tension about what do I do with, with this guilt that I'm feeling because I have bad grades, we have to ask ourselves, how do we handle this guilt, this tension that we feel when we do things that conflict with who we are and what we believe? And so today I'm gonna suggest that there's, there's two things that we'll try to do that never work, and then there's one thing that will work. And so, so we're gonna take a look at these. The, the first thing that, that we try to do, we're gonna try to tune out our, our sinfulness, right? We try to uh, tune out the, the fact that, that we do things that we're not proud of um, in an attempt to deal with it. And uh, this is the first big idea that, that if you're writing notes or, or you know, uh, uh, you want to remember later um, that I want you to go home with, uh, tuning out your sin does not make it go away. You, you can't just act like something's not there and expect it to go away. That's like, uh, that's like when I try to cook, you know. I can't just act like the pan's not on fire. If I do that, the house is going to burn down. You know, it's like the, the pretending the fire's not there doesn't make the fire go away. And I think there's, there's a lot of different ways that we'll try to tune out sinfulness. And, and I'm gonna just kind of pick on three that I think are most, most uh, relevant to, to us and to our culture. And I think the first way that we try to do this is through self-deception. I think that we'll, we'll try to deceive ourselves into thinking that the things that we're doing aren't, aren't actually wrong. And uh, this is something that I do, like every time I start a new diet, you know, I, started, I, I set up this like new plan. I have this high moral laws for these foods that I'm going to eat and not eat. And I feel really good about it. But then all of a sudden, you know, I see a donut. And here comes the tension now, right? Now my desire is conflicting with my law that I created for myself. And so what do I do? Well, I eat the donut. You know, I, can, I convince myself that it's not a bad thing. You know, I said, oh, it's only one donut. And you know, you've been good all day. You've earned, you've earned that donut. You know what? You should have two because they're not that bad, right? Like that's, that's the mental dialogue that we have. We'll start to, we'll start to justify and self-deceive. And, and in this moment, I've removed that tension temporarily by, by uh, deceiving myself into thinking that this doesn't really conflict with my standard. And so the same thing happens with our sinfulness. We'll, we'll, we'll do something um, that conflicts with God's law or God's scripture and then we'll try to do these mental gymnastics to, to tell ourselves it's not that big of a deal. And this is actually a, 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 a common like, phenomenon that psychologists refer to as cognitive dissonance. And so cognitive dissonance is this term um, that we use. It's, it's when we have like, internal discomfort caused by two mental competing uh, ideas, right? And so uh, when our sinful actions uh, conflict with Scripture, we'll try to alleviate the discomfort by deceiving ourselves into believing that our actions aren't bad or sinful, or maybe we'll just tell ourselves that Scripture isn't true, because if Scripture is not true, we don't have to believe it, you know? Um, and so in an attempt to tune out our sinfulness, we'll deceive ourselves into this whole new morality that will accommodate this, like, lifestyle choice that we want to make, but this fake morality doesn't actually remove sin, 
right? It just, it just allows us to embrace it, right? And then this sin kind of piles up and piles up and piles up until it hits this pain point because all of God's laws, all of God's commands that, that we are to follow as new covenant people uh, in Christ, uh, they're good for us. God is a good and perfect loving father. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows, Tim Keller actually uses this illustration uh, of a goldfish. And he says, the goldfish sits in this bowl saying, I want to be free. I'm stuck in this water. But as soon as you take the goldfish out of the water, what happens? It, it dies, right? The goldfish can't survive outside of the confines that it was made to be in. And so God knows us. He knows the, the confines that we're supposed to live in. And he gives us a good law so that we can operate within that. And when we deceive ourselves into thinking that that law isn't bad or our actions aren't actually contradicting it, we're just building up this surplus of pain that's going to affect our lives in a very negative way. And so, so one way that we'll try to remove this tension is through deception. Um, another way is through distraction, right? Um, distraction, yeah, the, the idea that, you know, maybe we, we'll work 70 hours a week so that we never really have to actually think about what's going on inside, or um, maybe we'll work around the house so much, you know, like laundry and this and that and kids that, that we never have to really kind of deal with what's going on. Um, or, or maybe uh, we get distracted with media, you know, the TV is always on in the background, or maybe we don't ever put our phone down, um, or always have our earbuds in, kind of drowning out that noise, you know. Um, there, there used to be a time uh, where I, I remember when people would say this, and I, and I mean, I say this like I'm so old, you know, but uh, I remember people would say this, and I, I don't really hear it anymore, but people would say, uh, whatever helps you sleep at night, right? And they'd say that to me all the time because I was always making bad choices. But what they're trying to tell me is that, okay, Austin, like, whatever helps you kind of remove this sense of guilt that you have, you know? And uh, in our culture, we're, we're not necessarily in places where we have to focus on on the, the, the sinfulness, the choices that we've made. But there was a time when people actually laid down at night on a pillow, no distractions, and they were left alone with the thoughts and the choices that they made that day. And there was something that we had to do to come to grips with that. And now, in our culture, we, we put on the office and just fall asleep to Michael Scott. You know, we just kind of drift off. Um, and so, so we'll try to tune out our sin through, like, deception or self-deception. And, 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 you know, if that doesn't work, we might try to distract ourselves um, and, and if we can't, like, distract ourselves, then, then what we'll do is try to move to, to distorting the way that we feel, right? And, and this, uh, you know, I say with a sense of, with a sense of somberness because I think it's, it's sad. This is actually um, before Christ got a hold of me. This, is, this was my thing, you know, but we'll, we'll feel this guilt and this tension and this shame, and we'll try to distract it with, you know, uh, alcohol or prescription medications or drugs or something like that, which is going to temporarily remove the sense that we're feeling, give us a temporarily feel numb. But, but experientially, I can tell you that that doesn't deal with your sin, right? That, that masks it for a minute, and as soon as the effect wears off, we're, we're left again with that same guilt, that same tension, but now it's just been exacerbated by the substance that we've tried. Or, or use regularly. And so all of these ways um, are ways of tuning out sin almost like on an internal level, like us trying to work inside, and none of them work. They're never going to remove our sense of guilt. Um, they might provide temporary relief, but they're, they're never actually going to remove the source from our guilt, and they're never going to remove our propensity to repeat the offense, right? They're not going to change us. They mask the tension so that we can just comfortably live lives that dishonor God. But once we realize that this approach doesn't work, we might shift gears to try to do what the Pharisees did and, and work with this external, you know, this external effort to work out our sin. And so if we can't tune it out, we might try to work it out. And uh, this is kind of the second big kind of take-home idea here is that there is no external work 
that can ever remove internal impurity. If I got a bad report card, like cutting the grass doesn't change my grade, right? And the Pharisees, they actually believed that what was wrong with the world was outside of them. That's why they washed their hands. They thought that they could do something out here to make them clean and that everything would be okay. And we see this. This has permeated our culture, right? We, we hear people all the time saying, the problem with the world is a lack of education. If we just educated people, you know, we would have no less violence. There would be less corruption. People would be nicer to each other. You know, or, or we might put our hope in like the government and say, man, if we just had a different president or a different Congress, if we had this, then, then they're going to work it all out on the outside. And, and this is crazy. Like, like we, we oftentimes believe this and fall into this and culture pushes this at us. But like we all know people who are incredibly educated that have done and continue to do bad things, right? We have never once seen this utopian government that's provided a sinless uh, life for people, a life without crime and poverty. And so the thought that these, these institutional ways of fixing sin will work is crazy. And so, so then we might kind of try to shift gears uh, and we might like, you know, pull, pull uh, Michael Jackson and think like, you know, if I can't work it out, you know, if like, it's like the idea of having like a, a severed arm and putting a Band-Aid on it and expecting it to stop the bleeding. You know, it's like, if I can't, if I can't stop the bleeding that way, uh, maybe I'll try to work on myself. I'm going to look at the man in the mirror. And I'm going to try to work on my own self. Uh, and, and once I'm the change that I'm, want, I'm wanting to see, things will be better out here. And, and uh, we might do this through achievement. You know, we might try to work really hard at our jobs or our schools or in our families so that people will look at us and say, oh, yeah, they're a good person. You know, but, but the second we fail, our whole world comes crashing down. And again, this doesn't actually uh, remove the sin. It doesn't keep us from doing things that we're not proud of. And so maybe we'll try religion, right? Religion is another viable option that we see in culture all the time. But every religion outside of Christianity is going to have like gods or God, a God that pulls out this cosmic scale and weighs your good and bad. And if your good doesn't outweigh your bad, you're, you're done, right? And, and like just even completely avoiding the argument that our good will never outweigh our bad, right? Just, I'm not even gonna go there, it's true, like our good will never outweigh our bad, but just completely order, getting rid of this uh, idea, like there's still fallacious thinking, right? There's a, there's a fallacy here that thinks that my good can make up for my bad, and that's not true. That's like saying, if I steal from my neighbor and then I go donate time at the homeless shelter, that my neighbor will be recouped for what I stole from him. It just doesn't work that way. And again, it's not going to deal with the inner person that's doing these things. And some of us, even Christ followers, you know, those of us who are in Christ, we think that if we come to church on Sundays or if we're a part of our small groups or we read our Bible and we pray and we don't drink or smoke or hang out with people who do, that God, God will look at us and, and think we're clean, that, that doing these things will make God, you know, give us God's approval. Um, and it's sad because that is not true, you know. And I want to be really clear on this, um, there are standards for obedience that all Christians follow. There are rules, and that's part of discipleship. That's just what it is. But, but we don't do this to earn God's love, right? We do this because it pleases him. It's like in Christ, we are loved unconditionally. We are assured of our salvation. But God's pleasure is conditional. And so we do the right things. We obey God's word because it's good for us and because it honors God. But you can't think for a second that your sin can make, or your good works can make up for your sin, right? Our sin has far too costly a price. The, the cost of our sin is death. When we sin, we're sinning against a, a holy, 
perfect, righteous God that can't even stand to be in the presence of sin. And so, so when we sin, our sin actually qualifies us only for death and eternal separation from God in, in this place of just constant regret and pain and agony apart from anything that is good. In spite of anything good that I do, my sin is an infraction against this perfect and holy God and it only qualifies me for hell. But God isn't just holy, right? God is love. And God loves us and he desires a relationship with us. And so in spite of our imperfections and in spite of our sinfulness, he has provided a way by coming down from heaven. God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, he came to earth and he lived a perfect life. He died an unjust death. He was killed for doing nothing wrong. And he was killed in such a way, the most excruciating way known to man at that time and probably still because that's what we deserve. Right? That is what we deserve. And, and because of this death on the cross, we can have atonement for our sin. Christ's purity, this perfect life that he lived, can be exchanged for our impurity. And so the bottom line is that each of us, we're all born with this inner impurity. And there's nothing we can do to remove it. Right? At this sermon, at the beginning of the message, I asked, you know, what can we do about this tension and guilt? The answer is nothing. You can't do anything about it. You can't work it out. Masking it to tune it out is not going to help. The bigger problem, too, is that one day, like, we will be accountable. We will stand before God. And, and apart from Christ, by our nature and by our choices, we will be found guilty. And so the only way that we can remove our guilt and clean our inner impurity is to trust Jesus, and he will take it out. And that's the big, the big idea here. If you go home with anything today, I want you to leave with only Jesus can take out our inner impurity. And there's one person in this entire passage who gets it. And I, and I love this because it's not the Pharisees and it's not the disciples. It's the Syrophoenician woman. And, and I think this is beautiful because she's kind of set up as this, this contrast, right? She's like this foil because the Pharisees were the epitome of what a first century reader would have thought is good. They, they were men, they were Jews, they followed all the rules, they were given this position of prominence within society, which was kind of believed to be given to them by God, right? And so now we have this woman, and she's a lady, you know, so she's automatically a notch lower than these guys. She's a Gentile, brings her down another notch, right? And then uh, she's from a part of the region that's already of disdain for the Jews. The Jews have, like, hostility with this particular region, the Syrian Phoenician region. And, and she doesn't come to Jesus with her righteousness, she comes to Jesus with, with her problems, right? Unlike, and, and then unlike all the disciples who don't get it, they, Jesus talks about this inner impurity and how we're unclean, and they're just like, what the heck, you know? This woman, she gets it. She knows. This woman's daughter has, has an unclean spirit. And, and we see this theme of cleanliness kind of connecting these three movements that we've looked at, right? The Pharisees were concerned with this external cleanliness. And then Jesus is talking about uh, internal uncleanliness. And now she's coming with an internal uncleanliness problem and she's asking Jesus to take care of it. And we'll see that he does. This woman being fully aware of her condition, she doesn't try to tune out the condition of her daughter. And she also doesn't try to fix the problem herself. She falls at the feet of Jesus and she just begs him, please remove this unclean spirit from my daughter. And then Jesus, he sees this, this, this image of her begging at his feet and he kind of works out this little parable um, which he, he, like, he calls him a, a, a dog or he calls her a dog. Uh, 
which was, which was like pretty offensive back then and, and will be nice to Jesus. He actually uses the word for puppy, so it's a little bit nicer. Um, but still the idea of like calling somebody a dog, it's an unclean animal. And so, so uh, Jesus is saying, let the children be fed first. It's not right to let the children's bread be thrown to the dogs. And then her response was perfect, right? See, Jesus is, Jesus is taking the uncleanliness from her daughter and he's shifting it to her by, by this illustration, this parable of the, referring to her as a dog. And, and she, doesn't, she doesn't fight against it. She doesn't uh, rebel. She, she starts by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. She's the only one in Scripture, or the only one in Mark that does this. She's the only one that calls Jesus Lord. And then she knows that the Lord God alone can take away her uncleanliness. Only God can make a declaration of cleanliness. Only God can take that which is unclean and make it clean. And so she says, yet even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. And I think about this, it's like, what would your response be, right? Like, what would my response be? When somebody tells me I'm wrong, my first response is, no, I'm not. You know, if somebody looks at you and says, you're sinful, you have an inner impurity, and there's nothing you can do about it, is your response, no, I don't. No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not unclean. You know, as a millennial, like, we'd be so triggered that we'd have to run to a safe space, you know, uh, and I can say that because I am a millennial here, but, but this woman, she gets it. She, she humbly acknowledges her sinfulness, and she asks Jesus to make her daughter clean, and Jesus does. And so if you want this inner impurity to be removed, you have to do what this woman did. You have to humbly fall at the feet of Jesus and declare him as the Lord God of your life and ask him to make you clean. Because if you don't, you're gonna be held to the standard of the law that the Pharisees tried to keep. You're gonna be held to this standard and this law is merciless. Like one infraction of the law makes you objectively guilty of the whole thing. And there's a, there's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress that kind of illustrates this. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, it's a great book. It's an allegory about the Christian life. And so everybody's name and every place that they go to has this like kind of deeper meaning to it. And so the main character is Christian and he's kind of journeying on trying to get to heaven. He's walking along the narrow way and he meets up with this guy named Faithful. And like halfway through the story, they're kind of like telling, telling each, like their tales like before they met each other. And so Faithful uh, he tells the story to Christian about he's, he's walking and just out of nowhere, he just gets hit. And he's on the ground and, and he falls and, and he's realizing that he's just getting beaten senselessly. And he cries out, he's like, why, why, why are you doing this to me? You know, his attacker's looking down at him and he says, because you bear the mark of Adam. And he just keeps hitting him and hitting him. And now Faithful is almost dead. He kind of musters up this, this, uh, this last kind of cry and he says, mercy, mercy, please, sir, show me mercy. And the guy hitting him just keeps going. He says, I know not how to show mercy. And so now Christian, he's like on the edge of his seat, right? You know, what happened? And Faithful's like, well, I was on the brink of death. And another man came and stopped the beatings. Christian says, who was this man? Who, who stopped the beatings? Faithful responded, well, at first I didn't recognize him. But as he went by, I noticed the holes in his hands and on his side. And I concluded that it was our Lord. And Christian, he jumps in and he goes, well, you know who that guy who was beating you? So that was Moses. And he doesn't spare anyone. The law doesn't spare anyone. He says, nor does he know how to show mercy to those who disobey the law. And so trying to tune out your sinfulness will never work, right? Trying to, trying to work out your inner impurity is gonna feel like a constant beat down. And it will never remove your sin. 
And so uh, don't, don't live like the high school student under the weight of the grades of the law, right? My plea for you tonight is that if you're not in Christ, trust in Jesus to remove your sin. Be like the Syrophoenician woman, right? Confess your sin to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness. Declare him the Lord of your life. And, and, and if this is a conversation that you want to have, there's people with name tags that you'll see after the service. They would love to talk to you with that, lanyards or name tags. Um, and if this is a step that you're not ready for yet, my, my exhortation for you would be, so just read the New Testament. Start with Matthew and work your way through Revelation and get to know Jesus, the, the man, the, the God-man who came to earth and died for you. And if you are followers of Christ, there is, there is an exhortation in here to follow the laws of God not the laws of man. And God boils down his own laws. In Mark 12, he says, the most important law, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law that we are to uphold. We are to love God with all that we have and with all that we are, and we're supposed to love other people. Please, if you are in Christ, stop trying to earn your salvation, Right? Don't be like the Pharisees, tirelessly working so that God will accept you. Rest in the, in the sacrifice that Christ made. Uh, rest in the forgiveness that you've received in Christ and, and enter into the delight of bearing his yoke. Because we can't, we can't tune out our sinfulness. We can't work it out. If we want that inner impurity to be removed, only Christ can take it out. Uh, bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for, for this time um, to come as your people gathered. Um, we ask that uh, whatever, whatever words might have been mine um, that weren't from you would just be forgotten. Uh, we ask that your word would ring true, that it would form us, that it would shape us, um, that we would conform our lives to it, and that we would uh, have our affections more deeply stirred for you as a result of reading it. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us as your God, as our God who loves us. Help us to love you more and to be more like you. And um, for all of us, help us to trust in Jesus. Uh, we worship you and we praise you, and we pray this in his name. Amen.